This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Vikram Chandra, and it's my very great pleasure today to uh, introduce Fred Vogelstein at Story Hour. Um, and it's a really particular pleasure because when you're running a highfalutin reading series like this at a university, it's not often that you get to introduce someone who you've seen passed out drunk on a very grungy couch <laughs> in a lobby that looks like it was the target of a barbarian raid. <laughs> uh, the reason I've seen Fred in this state is because he and I lived in the same undergrad dormitory at Pomona College uh, <laughs> back in those prehistoric days before cell phones, um, which is why I don't have photographic evidence of Fred's shenanigans. <laughs> But that's probably all to the good, because he no doubt has seen me in much the same condition on that very couch, <laughs> which is probably still there. Um, anyway, so after we both graduated, Fred went on to do many wonderful things. He worked as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, at, the New, York, at New York Newsday, U.S. News and World Report, and Fortune. He wrote extensively about varied topics, such as the rise of music file-sharing services, the deflating of the first internet bubble, the rising costs of college, the ascent of Google, and the resurgence of internet revenues and of startups. He's currently a contributing editor at Wired Magazine, where he has written about the battles between Silicon Valley's giant companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. All of this to say that he's been on the front lines of all the advances and upheavals that have produced the technological, social, and political landscapes we live in today. And all of this accumulated knowledge comes through powerfully in his first book, Dogfight, which, as the subtitle tells us, is about how Apple and Google went to war and started a revolution. The war, of course, was over the billions at stake in the new mobile market opened up by the iPhone and Android, and Fred's reports on it, and Fred reports on it with an immediacy and intimacy that is unique. Fortune magazine remarked in its review of Dogfight, the book is loaded with fresh, never-before-reported details, thanks to interviews that Vogelstein scored with a nearly dozen Apple engineers, managers, and partners who had either never spoken to a reporter before or had never talked at length about their experiences. The Huffington Post reviewer observed, in a, dogfight, in a word, dogfight is excellent. Vogelstein makes you, makes you feel like you're sitting in key meetings with senior execs like Steve Jobs, Andy Rubin, Sergey Brin, Eric Schmidt, Larry Page, and others intricately involved in the development of, of the iPhone and Android. And then finally, uh, Metroactive put it very bluntly. Anyone considering writing a novel about Silicon Valley or a spy thriller set in the computer industry should forget, should forget about it. Why? Because the truth is often more entertaining especially in the case of Fred Vogelstein's new book, Dogfight. The story contains many elements of an epic saga with all the betrayal and ego-jockeying that one finds in fiction. Dogfight is the result of building a network of sources over the course of half of Vogelstein's adult life, perhaps. It could only have been written by someone with deep insider connections both on and off the record, which is precisely why it reads like a spy thriller. And I couldn't agree with all of the above more, uh, but I will only add that the narrative momentum in this book is built up through expert pacing, vibrant and lucid prose, um, the complex development of characters, even though they're actual people, and a really vivid sense of place. Um, it's a fine, fine book, and you should all read it. Um, please join me in welcoming Fred Vogelstein. Can I have a copy of that? <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. That was, it's really, really nice to be here. Um, thank you all for coming. What I want to do is, what do I want to do? This project, I want to tell you a little bit about how this project grew and then read a little bit from uh, the first chapter that uh, opens the book. Uh, so this grew out of a handful of stories I wrote for Wired from 2008 to 2010. What started to become clear to me as I worked on those pieces was that the Apple-Google fight was more than just a run-of-the-mill corporate cat fight, that 
they weren't just fighting each other over who was going to be king of the hill in high tech. They were fighting each other over um, who was going to be the dominant player in media, too. Uh, this seems a little counterintuitive until you actually stop for a minute and think about what it is you do with your phone and your tablet. Uh, I have gotten to the point where I read the newspaper on it. I have gotten to the point where I read a lot of books on it. I've gotten to the point where my kids have gotten to the point where they don't use the PlayStation or the Wii anymore. They play video games on it. Um, I've even started to watch movies and TV uh, on these things. Enough so that it's gotten to the point where I think we can all say that I, my kids don't ask me whether or not I, they want to watch TV anymore. Uh, they ask for screen time. And there's a reason for that, which is that watching TV really is, used to be, when we were all younger, it used to be a very clear and unambiguous idea. Um, it now just makes you more confused. I mean, are you talking about your computer? Are you talking about the TV in the living room? Are you talking about your tablet? Are you talking about your phone? Um, so the world is changing in radical ways. Um, it's sort of as if these devices have gotten to the point where it's sort of as if uh, every piece of consumer electronics that was ever invented in our lifetime got condensed into one or two devices that now fit in our pocket. And so what makes Apple and Google important in all of this is that it's their networks that are at the other end of these devices. Um, which is kind of a pretty big deal when you stop and think about it. Uh, if you read this book on your iPad, you either bought it on iTunes or you bought it on Amazon. Uh, and if you bought it on Amazon, you bought it on Amazon after Amazon had gotten permission to list its app on either uh, the iPad or the Android device that you're looking at. Um, so what this means is that the Valley's on its way to becoming a media center as well as a technology center. And I think that people are just starting to wake up to that. Give me a minute here, because I'm dropping stuff. Um, it's a little weird to kind of think about Apple and Google as making, issue, making episodes of Mad Men um, or Breaking Bad. Um, and I don't actually think they're going to do that. On the other hand, they are going to finance them, and they're already starting to. And that's because they actually have more money than most of Hollywood now at this point. Um, we know how many eyeballs they now have. Um, I think it's now true that, what, 25, 20, we, wa we spend about half our, half our media time on online as opposed to watching TV, and about a quarter to a third of that time is now spent um, on our mobile devices. And so the combination of reach and money um, is going to lead to all kinds, of, all kinds of changes. I mean, to give you some ideas to what I'm talking about, Apple and Google together have about $250 billion in cash. That's just cash sitting on their, sitting on their balance sheets doing nothing. Uh, that... To put that in perspective, you could buy News Corp and CBS and Viacom with that. Uh, point is, is that Apple and Google together probably have as much cash to buy half of Hollywood if they wanted. Um, So what I saw wasn't just a corporate catfight, but basically just a massive reordering of what was how we get and process information. To me, the um, impact seemed as big as the television and the telephone, never mind the invention of the personal computer. Um, and exploring that seemed like a really good idea to me. Um, what's really kind of strange to me is it's tempting when you're writing about this to think of it like a big sporting event, who's winning, who's losing. And it's pretty obvious to me that Apple and Google are, that, Apple, that Google is actually winning the fight. Um, and 
I think there's some things that are going on at Apple that make me worry about where it's headed. But it's actually hard for me, at least having done this, to be pleased about all of this because um, I developed such a respect for the engineers in the trenches building these things on both sides that I kind of hard, find it hard to root for either side. I mean, what most of us don't realize is, is that while Google and Apple want us to think that their innovation process is a straight line that sort of starts here and ends here, um, and that they're a bunch of geniuses all sitting in front of their two in front of their terminals ch changing the world um, it's really nothing like that it's actually much more like a bunch of mad scientists running around with their hair on fire um, and so one of the engineers who agreed to tell his story to me at great risk at great risk I'll tell you um, was a former Apple exec named Andy Grignon. Um, he left Apple in 2008, went to go work at Palm to run um, engineering there, and now has his own company. Um, but he was one of the first engineers hired to work on the iPhone, and so he shared his story with me, and I wanted to read a little bit of it for you today. Um, the 55 miles from Campbell to San Francisco is one of the nicest commutes anywhere. The journey mostly zips along the Junipero Serra Freeway, which is a grand and remarkably empty highway that abuts the east side of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Known to 280, known as 280 to locals, it's one of the best places in the valley to spot a startup tycoon speed testing his Ferrari. It's also one of the worst places for cell phone reception. For Andy Grignon, therefore, and his Porsche, it was the perfect place for him to be alone with his thoughts early on January 8th, 2007. This wasn't Grignon's typical route to work. He was a senior engineer at Apple in Cupertino, the town just west of Campbell. His morning drive typically covered seven miles and took exactly 15 minutes. But today was different. He was going to watch his boss, Steve Jobs, make history at the Macworld trade show in San Francisco. Apple fans for years begged Jobs to put a cell phone inside their iPod so they could stop carrying two devices. Jobs was about to fulfill that wish. Grignon and some colleagues would spend the night at a nearby hotel, and at 10 a.m. the following day, they, along with the rest of the world, would watch Jobs unveil the first iPhone. Getting invited to one of Jobs' famous product announcements was supposed to be a great honor, a few dozen Apple employees, including top executives, got an invite. The rest of the spots were reserved for Apple's board of directors, their CEOs, CEOs of partners, and journalists from around the world. Grignon got an invite because he was the senior engineer for all the radios in the iPhone. This, as you might imagine, is a very big job. Um, cell phones do many things for us today, but at their most basic, they're fancy two-way radios. Grignon was in charge of the equipment that allowed the phone to be a phone. If the phone didn't make calls, connect with Bluetooth headsets or Wi-Fi setups, Grignon was the guy that had to answer for it. And as one of the earliest iPhone engineers, he dedicated two and a half years of his life, often seven days a week, to the project. Few deserved to be there more than he did. But as Grignon drove north, he didn't feel excited. He felt terrified. Most onstage product demonstrations in Silicon Valley are canned. The thinking goes, while it bad internet or cell phone connections ruin an otherwise good presentation. Jobs' presentations were live, however. It was one of the things that made his show so captivating. But for those in the background, such as Grignon, few parts of the job caused more stress. Grignon couldn't remember the last time a job show of this magnitude had gone sideways. Part of what made Steve Jobs such a legend was that the noticeable product demo glitches that most experience almost never happened. But Grignon found it also hard to recall the last time Jobs was so unprepared going into a show. He'd been part of the launch preparation team at Apple and later at the presentation site in San Francisco's Moscone Center. But he'd rarely seen Jobs make it all the way through his 90-minute show without a glitch. 
Jobs had been rehearsing for five days, and yet even on the last day of rehearsals, the phone was still randomly dropping calls, losing the internet connection, and sometimes just shutting down. Like everything else that surrounded Jobs, the preparations were as secret as a U.S. missile attack on Afghanistan. Those who were truly in felt like they were at the center of the universe from Thursday through the end of the following week. Apple completely took over Moscone. Backstage, it built an 8-by-8-foot electronics lab to house and test the iPhones, and next to that, it built a green room with a sofa for Jobs. And then it posted more than a dozen security guards 24 hours a day in front of those rooms and at doors throughout the building. No one got in or out without having his or her ID electronically checked and compared with a master list that Jobs had personally approved. More security checkpoints needed to be cleared once visitors got inside. The auditorium where Jobs was rehearsing was off limits to all but a small group of executives. Jobs was so obsessed with leaks that he tried to have all the contractors Apple had hired for the announcement. These are the people manning booths and doing demos and those responsible for lighting and sound. He wanted to have them sleep in the building the night before the presentation. Aides had to talk him out of it. At first, it was just really cool to be at rehearsals, Grignon told me. Heck yeah, I get to hang out with Steve. It quickly got really uncomfortable, though. Very rarely did I see him become completely unglued. It happened, but mostly he just looked at you very directly and said in a very loud and stern voice, you are f***ing up my company. Or, if we fail, it'll be because of you. And you'd always feel an inch tall when he was done chewing you out. You'd always ask yourself two questions during one of these lectures. Is it my stuff that's broke this time? And then, is it the nth time it's broken or the first time? Because believe it or not, that actually mattered. The nth time would frustrate him, but by then he'd probably figured out a way around it. But the first time added a whole new level of instability to the program. Grignon, like everyone else at rehearsals, understood that if those glitches showed up during the real presentation, Jobs would not be blaming himself for the problems. He'd go after people like him. The iPhone didn't work right for a really good reason. It wasn't close to being finished. Jobs was showing off a prototype. He just didn't want the rest of the world to know that. But the list of things that still needed to be done before the iPhone could be sold was enormous. A production line had yet to be set up. Only about 100 iPhones even existed, um, all of them of varying degrees of quality. The phone's software was even in worse shape. A big chunk of the previous four months had been consumed figuring out why the iPhone's processor and its cell radio wouldn't reliably communicate. This large problem was akin to a car with an engine that occasionally doesn't respond to the accelerator or wheels that occasionally don't respond to the brake pedal. It almost brought the program to a halt, Andy said. We'd never seen a problem that complicated. This was ordinarily not a problem for phone makers, but Apple's obsession with secrecy had kept Samsung, the maker of the phone's processor, and Infineon, the maker of the iPhone's cell radio, from working together until Apple, in desperation, flew teams of engineers from each company to Cupertino to help fix the problem. Jobs rarely backed himself into corners like this. He was well known as a master taskmaster, seeming to always know just how hard he could push his staff so that they delivered the impossible, but he always had a backup, a plan B that he could go to if his timetable was off. But he had no choice but to show off the iPhone this time. He had given this opening keynote at every Macworld since he returned to Apple as CEO in 97, and because he gave public presentations only once or twice a year, he conditioned Apple fans to expect big things from them. He introduced iTunes here, the iMac, the one that looked like a fancy desk lamp, the Safari web browser, the Mac Mini, the iPod Shuffle, and it wasn't just his own company that Jobs had to worry about disappointing this time. AT&T was expecting Jobs to unveil the iPhone at Macworld, too. In exchange for being the exclusive carrier of the iPhone in the U.S., AT&T had given Jobs total control of the design, manufacturer, and marketing of the iPhone, 
It had never done anything like this before. If Jobs didn't launch on time, AT&T could back out of its deal, and it's not hard to explain that a product called the iPhone that couldn't make phone calls would sell poorly. Days before Jobs had flown to Vegas, Las Vegas to give AT&T's top mobile executives a limited demo of the iPhone, but they were expecting a full show at Macworld. Lastly, the iPhone was the only cool new thing Apple actually had to show. It had been such an all-encompassing project that by the time, by the time, um, it was, it had been such an all-encompassing project at Apple that this time there was no backup plan. Grignon said it was Apple TV or the iPhone, and if he had gone to Macworld with just the Apple TV, which was experimental back then, the world would have said, what the heck was that? The iPhone's problems were manifest. It could play a section of a song or a video, but it couldn't play the entire clip without crashing. It worked fine if you sent an email and then surfed the web if you did those things in reverse. It did not. Hours and hours of trial and error had helped the iPhone team develop what engineers called the golden path, which was a specific set of tasks performed in a specific way that made the phone look as if it worked. But even when Jobs stayed on the golden path, it required all manner of last-minute workarounds to make the iPhone functional. On announcement day, the software that ran Grignon's radio still had bugs, and so too did the software that managed the iPhone's memory, and no one knew whether the extra electronics Jobs had required to be added to the demo units would make these problems worse. Jobs had required the demo phones he would use on stage to have their screens mirrored on the big screen behind him. To show a gadget on a big screen, most companies just point a video camera connected to a projector at the gadget. I mean, it's very old world and analog. The guy with a big video camera just kind of gets up there and points it at the gadget that's on a podium or a table. Um, but this was unacceptable to Jobs. The audience would see his finger on the iPhone screen, which would mar the look of his presentation. And so instead, he had engineers spend weeks fitting extra circuit boards onto the backs of iPhones he would have on stage. The video cables that ran out of these would then connect to a projector showing the iPhone image on the screen behind him. So a job would Jobs would touch the iPhone's calendar icon, for example. His finger wouldn't appear, but the image on the big screen would respond. The effect was magical. People in the audience felt as if they were actually holding an iPhone in their hands. But making the setup work flawlessly, given the iPhone's other major problems, seemed hard to justify at the time. The software in the iPhone's Wi-Fi radio was so unstable that Grignon and his team ultimately soldered antenna wires to the demo phones and ran them off stage along the wires to the projection setup. The iPhone would still connect wirelessly to the network, but the signal wouldn't have to travel as far. And even then, Grignon and his team needed to make sure that no one in the audience could get on the frequency they were using. I mean, it's easy to hide a Wi-Fi signal from most mortals, but as Grignon told me, he had 5,000 nerds in the audience they had figured out a way to find it in a minute. Um, so the solution, he said, was to simply tweak the airport software to think it was operating in Japan instead of the United States. It turns out, and who knew, that Japanese Wi-Fi uses some frequencies that are not permitted in the United States. There was even less they could do to make sure that the call jobs planned to make from the stage went through. All Crignon and his team could do was actually make sure the signal was good and pray. They had AT&T bring in a portable cell tower so that they knew the reception would be strong. And then they pre-programmed the phone's display to always show five bars, regardless of the true signal. The chances of the radio crashing during the few minutes that Jobs would use it to make a call were small, but the chances of it crashing at some point during the 90-minute presentation were high. So if the radio crashed and restarted, Grignon told me, as we suspected it might, we didn't want people in the audience to see the bars go from 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 to 1 and then back up again. So we just hard-coded it. Um, 
None of these fixed the iPhone's biggest problem, which was often it often ran out of memory and had to be restarted if asked to do more than a handful of tasks at a time. The idea that one of the biggest moments of his career might implode made Grignon's stomach hurt. At 40, he looks like the kind of guy you'd want to have a drink with, and he is, but by 2007, he was emotionally exhausted. He'd gained 50 pounds. He'd stressed his marriage. It had been a grueling two years. Apple had never built a phone before, and the iPhone team quickly discovered the process didn't resemble building computers or iPods at all. It was all very dramatic, Grignon said. It had been drilled into everyone's head that this was the next big thing to come out of Apple. So you put all these super smart people with huge egos into very tight, confined quarters with that kind of pressure and crazy stuff starts to happen. The four months leading up to announcement day were particularly rough, Grignon told me. Screaming matches broke out routinely in the hallways. Engineers, frazzled from all-night coding sessions, quit, only to rejoin days later after catching up on their sleep. One of Grignon's colleagues slammed the door to her office so hard that the handle belt and locked her in. It took colleagues more than an hour with some well-placed wax of an aluminum bat to free her. (laughs) We were all standing there watching it, he told me. Part of it was funny, but it was also one of those moments where you step back and realize how messed up it all is. To Grignon's amazement, and to many others in the audience, Jobs' iPhone demo on January 9th, 2007, was flawless. He started the show saying, this is a day I've been waiting for for two and a half years. He regaled the audience with a myriad of tales about how why consumers hated their cell phones, and then he solved all their problems definitively. Virtually everyone in the audience had been expecting Jobs to announce a phone, and yet they were still in awe. He used the phone to play some music and watch a movie clip. He made a phone call. He sent an email and a text showing how easy it was to type on the phone's touchscreen keyboard. He scrolled through a bunch of photos showing how you could make the pictures bigger and smaller with your fingers. He navigated Amazon's webpage and the New York Times websites. And he found Starbucks with Google Maps and called the number from the stage, much to the shock of the person on the other line. Um, By the end, Grignon wasn't just happy, he was drunk. He brought a flask of scotch to calm his nerves. And so there we were, in the fifth row or something, engineers, managers, all of us, doing shots of scotch after every segment of the demo. There were about five or six of us, and after each piece of the demo, the person who was responsible for that portion did a shot. And when the finale came and it worked along with everything before it, we all just drained the flask. It was the best demo any of us had ever seen, and the rest of the day just turned out to be a shit show for the entire iPhone team. We spent the entire rest of the day drinking in the city. It was a mess, but boy, was it great. Thank you all. So I'm happy to answer questions if you guys have them. Um, it's hot here. <laughs> Why do you think Android is winning? Say again? Why do you think Android is winning? I think Android is winning for the same reason that I think that um, Windows beat Apple 30 years ago. Um, its approach to, to me at least, What's going on here is a platform war. Um, So the way Windows beat Apple 30 years ago was that it figured out a way to get its software on every single personal computer that was ever made, um, while Apple focused on one device. Um, You see that happening again now. And if you look at the market share numbers, uh, it's hard to ignore what's happening. Um, When Apple first released the iPhone, the market share, its market share was 
you know, above 90% in the smartphone market, it's now worldwide below 20%. It's higher in the U.S., but the point here is that a lot of people have made the argument here that Apple is just like BMW, that it or any luxury car maker. It's making a very, very high-end product, and it can keep making that high-end product and maintain a very small market share. The problem with the world of technology is, is it doesn't really work that way, or it hasn't worked that way in the past. It might, this might be the first time, but in the world of technology, in the world of technology software platforms, ultimately, they tend to be winner-take-all games. Um, and this isn't really just true of Windows. This is also true of, I mean, if you look at, the, if you look at eBay, for example, um, there were half a dozen auction companies uh, in the early 2000s uh, when eBay made it possible for people to raid each other and created sort of a trusted system within, within the eBay network. Um, it got all the customers, and so because ultimately people did business on eBay because everybody else was doing business on eBay. Um, Google won the advertising, the online advertising fight, uh, because at a certain point it had so much traffic and so many advertisers that any time anybody uh, tried to compete with it, it simply cut its price and made the re- and made the money up on volume. Um, you've seen the same thing happen with Facebook. Um, some of us remember MySpace and the number of other uh, social networks that were out there, but Facebook has become the social network, and we... I know lots of people who joined Facebook, not because they wanted to, but because everybody else they knew was on Facebook, and it was the only way that they could actually share stuff with them um, the same way. We remember this story from Microsoft Word. Uh, It's like, why don't you... Microsoft Word still has a lock on the the, uh, software market, um, on on the word processing software market, because people don't want to take the chance of sending something. To, uh, you don't want to say, take the chance of sending a business proposal to somebody and have them not be able to open it. You could argue and say, like, you're stupid. You should be able to open it. You know, don't you know how to use Google Docs? But that's um, probably not going to get you the business. Uh, so I think that that's what's kind of going on here. And, um, you know, as long as Apple can keep making money, can keep making developers money, it'll hold its position. I'm just worried it can't do that forever. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Um, do you think um, without Jobs, Apple will be able to pull out another amazing breakthrough? No. No. <laughs> I don't. Um, I, it's, it's one of the things that kind of comes through. It's pretty straightforward, actually. One of the things that's that I came to sort of really appreciate from doing research on the book is the importance of what I call founder cred. Um, and maybe Steve Jobs is the only person who had this, but I think that like you could point this at a lot of, at a lot of companies. Essentially, Apple bet the entire company on the iPhone. If the iPhone had not succeeded, Apple as a company would have gone into a crater. It wouldn't have had, not only would it have spent all this money to build the product and have a bunch of engineers frustrated with the experience leave, but it, would have, it wouldn't have had anything in the product pipeline for years. Uh, I don't know. I think that in order to come up with world-changing products, you need to be able to bet the company in order to do it and I don't know that anybody at Apple has that flexibility anymore. And I don't say that as a I don't say that as an insult or as a to to Tim Cook, who I think is an amazing executive, and Johnny Ive, who I think is obviously brilliant. It's just that people would follow 
I don't know. I don't know that that the people at Apple would blindly follow them the same way, you know, to the edge of a cliff, the same way that they followed Jobs. Um, and so I'm, I'm, and Apple is a company in particular that needs to keep reinventing coming up with world-changing products that boil the ocean again and again in order to in order to survive. I mean, if you think about, I mean, Apple has been one of the most incredible success stories of the past uh, 10 or 15 years. It's been driven by essentially three earth change, three or four earth-changing products. Um, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, and I suppose if you wanted, you could throw, you know, some of the new Macs and some of the uh, and iTunes in there as well. But the point is that you know. Another way to think about it is: Do you think? Do you think that Tim Cook or Johnny Ive or anybody at Apple besides Steve Jobs could have negotiated? could have convinced the record labels to help him start iTunes. Um, the folks at AT&T um, said, <laughs> the folks at AT&T said this to me about jobs. I mean, in order for the folks at AT&T to do what they did, they had to take an enormous risk. So in order for them to actually make this um, you know, they had never actually done business this way. One of them said to me, you know, for 20 years, the most important thing in college was beer. All of a sudden, it was the iPod. It's like, the point is, even AT&T, which was a giant corporation, knew that by associating itself with Steve Jobs, they would be able to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I don't know that anybody at Apple can do that now. Go ahead. So based on what you're saying, would you, is the conclusion that any large company isn't going to be innovative anymore because there's nobody like Steve Jobs or any other large company? I think I think the answer I think the answer has to do with founders as much as Steve Jobs. So I think that um, founders have a certain amount of credibility inside technology companies um, that is unique. Uh, the other example, the other example that people are spending a lot of time thinking about right now is Microsoft. I think it's probably fair to say that while Microsoft has made a ton of money in the past decade under Steve Ballmer, um, it has also missed every single major um, innovation uh, in technology during that period of time. Um, it happens to kind of coincide with Bill Gates stepping aside. Uh, I think that if you were to look at, I mean, HP is probably, you know, HP is a pretty good example, too. Um, IBM isn't a bad example, either. I mean, it took, so after, it took about 10, it took about 10 or 15 years, but after the last after the last Watson stopped running IBM, it took about 15 years before IBM ran aground. There's something about a founder that allows a company to do things that in the world of technology that is not possible, that is often not possible. It allows, it allows a company to take risks that they otherwise might not take. It's obviously not a rule. I just—it's just an observation. Go ahead. So, do you have any ideas about what the next big thing might be? Um, well, I know what I want. Um, I don't want a watch, and I don't want Google Glass. Um, although those things might be big. Um, what I want is, and I think that Apple tomorrow could solve the problem of watching television. Uh, simply by using $5 billion. I mean, if Apple spent $5 billion a year, which it wouldn't even miss, um, it could solve the fragmentation that exists in the television, uh, in the world of watching television. I mean, so 
I know what goes on in my house. It's like we check Netflix and then we look on Amazon and then we, I mean, there are a bunch of different places that you have to go to find, to find content now. Um, Apple could be the, if Apple wanted, because Hollywood, Hollywood essentially cares about how many people are going to watch its stuff and how much money they're going to get, which is totally reasonable. Uh, if Apple spent five to seven billion dollars a year, it could have all the content it wanted. But the thing that I want is the self-driving car. Um, I think actually that has the potential to um, make the search engine from Google look quaint uh, by comparison. Uh, I, I still think we're probably 10 years off, but I think five years ago we would have said that it wasn't going to happen in our lifetimes. Meanwhile, like there's a guy, that, one of the guys who runs the, electric, the, the self-driving car program in Berkeley, lives in Berkeley and, and goes to Google to work at Google every single day in his self-driving car. Um, I mean, I don't think he's sitting in the back seat yet, um, but I, I think that like it, it's so far ahead of where at least I thought it was going to be that uh, you know I, I actually when I read when I've read about it I find myself thinking that it's you know ten years away. <laughs> really, I mean, I think I, it would be amazing. It's like when you stop and think about it, actually, it like, is going to completely change the way we think. I mean, if there were no parking structures required because you could send your car to go home and then come back for you later or go around the block while you shopped. I mean, you think about, I mean, you actually think about like, what, the, what, the physic, what the physical look of our world would be like and... It's kind of extraordinary, right? I mean, so because the decisions that we don't even think about this very much, right? Where we live and where we work are driven by, you know, we, every day we decide how far is it, how long is it going to take to get there. Well, if all of a sudden those things, like, became less relevant, it would change what cities looked like. It would change what suburbs looked like. It would change where people put um, grocery stores and parking lots and things of that sort. I mean, I mean, you just think about an airport, for example. I mean... What if, like, you didn't have to park your car at the airport because you just took your car to the airport and then sent it home? Or what if you didn't have to drive your kid to school? I mean, uh, anyway. I would like one tomorrow, please. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So uh, I just had a question. Do uh, you think what, uh, what Amazon has done to publishing is going to happen is, is what uh, Google and Apple are trying to do to Hollywood for the music studios, and, and how far has that gone so far if it has happened? Um, it's, all going, it's all going far very quickly. Um, I thought, uh, first of all, I mean, one of the things that I thought I, I had to spend a fair amount of time thinking about before I actually undertook this project was whether or not it was fair to actually focus just on Apple and Google, because there are a lot of people who could make a credible argument that said, well, you left out Facebook, you left out Amazon, you left out Microsoft, you left out Twitter. I mean, you, you, could, you left out Netflix. Uh, and what I ultimately concluded was that because Apple and Google actually controlled the software on these devices, that they were a notch above, um, that they actually had, because they had the power to kind of um, decide who got on and who got off, uh, that gave them sort of an extra edge. And they've used that, Apple used that power against Facebook in 2010. I mean, there was a period of time where Facebook was negotiating with Apple to kind of be deeply embedded into um, the iPhone operating system in 2010. And all of a sudden, when the announcement came out, Twitter was the guy that Apple had done the deal with. Well, the story that was going on was that Facebook negotiated too hard, and Apple just said, tough, see ya. Um, so yeah, I think, it's, I think all of that is happening very quickly. Go ahead. Um, you used the word worry from the beginning of your talk, and you've been talking about some pretty Apple-centric words. So I, I just want 
investment? Should we, should we really be worried by the triumph of, if it happens, of a relatively open platform, uh, a relatively open and flexible device, a relatively open market, uh, and a company whose founders are very much still intact? Um, should we be worried about it? Should we be worried? Yeah. Um, it's a $64,000 question. Uh, right now, I think the answer is no. Um, at some point, the answer will be yes. Um, hopefully, what typically happens, I, I sort of have a theory about the way business works, which is that at least in technology, which is that either you wind up getting out-competed uh, or you get sued by the Justice Department. Um, I'm, that, sounds, that sounds kind of glib, but if you stop and think about it, there's sort of some history to it. I mean, uh, IBM got so powerful that people were terrified of taking it on, and ultimately the Justice Department sued it. Um, Microsoft, same thing happened to Microsoft. Uh, if Google continues to sort of amass the kind of power at the rate that it's going to that it's amassing it, same thing's going to happen. It'll take a long time, just as it took probably a decade for the government to develop the case against Microsoft, but I think that it'll go one of the, it, it'll go in one of those two directions, I think. So I guess the answer is no. I'm not that worried. <laughs> sure, go ahead. There's a certain contradiction here, just in a broad sense. Not in what you're saying, but in just the way the world works. I agree that Google and Apple have so much power. But over the content producers, they really shouldn't because producing content is something that requires a lot of skill, a lot of uh, learning, learning and dedication. Take note. One of the one of the things about the internet revolution is that it's democratizing technology. So a publisher could easily start a website where they sell their own books and they refuse to sell to Amazon. You know, you know. But for Amazon to replicate what the publisher is doing would seem even harder. Because you need, you know, you need publishers with experience and good authors, and you need to—it's it's a production, just like a movie production. It's harder than setting up a website to broadcast that movie to users, like Netflix. Like right. So I don't know how, why these companies like Amazon and Google and Apple are getting so much power when the content is really—and everyone says, right, content is king. But why do the internet companies still have so much more power than the content? Well, because I mean, I think that I mean it's. The thing that people, if they don't necessarily, if they ne can't put their finger on it, I think the thing that people worry about is the distribution networks. So basically, like Apple and Google, especially because they control these endpoints, I mean, they're essentially like 21st century TV networks. I mean, it's that's kind of a bad, that's kind of a bad example because it's kind of a bad comparison because it's so old, but. That's why I think what people the, the worry is similar. The only difference, though, is that even when we had three TV networks a generation and a half ago, um, they were using the government's airways, and so there were so even though they had their own private businesses, they were actually licensing the um, spectrum from the government um, and. So I think the people are, what people are worried about is, is that essentially you're going to wind up with companies with the same power over information as the TV networks had um, without the kind of oversight that uh, currently that, that would be necessary. Go ahead. Right. Um, sure. The question. The, the question was uh, about the impact that gentrification is having, especially on San Francisco, um, and 
what I think the tech company should do about it. I think they should do a lot more. Uh, I think that uh, I understand what the I understand what the uh, San Francisco law says about how they can't charge uh, more than a dollar per pickup for all these companies, but it seems like they could solve the problem fairly quickly, or at least it seems like they could solve the it seems like they could solve the problem by charging the tech companies a lot more to pick up in the city and then using that money to help defray some of the um, some of the uh, Ellis Act issues that are starting to co- crop up where landlords are kind of pushing people out uh, with questionable tactics. So, you know, I think this is one of those situations where, and we're sort of watching this happen before our eyes, you know, the guys in the tech world were always sort of underdogs, and... Um, now they've become sort of the most powerful companies in America, and they're not, they haven't yet completely caught up with that changed perception. Um, but having people throw, having people stop your buses on the way to work and throw things at them, uh, I imagine, is getting them to start thinking about that pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Okay, thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.